Hello and welcome to the latest Ayumi podcast where we will be discussing the very important and ongoing crew crisis situation. Today we are very lucky to have three people from PNI Club Guard speaking about this very important subject. Alice Admondson, Vice President, Head of People Claims, Kanal Pathak, Loss Prevention Manager, Asia, and Malene Wang, Lawyer in Guard's Charters and Traders Defence Team in Asia. Hello and welcome. Hello. Hello, Kat. Hi, Kat. Thanks for having us. Thank you for being here. To begin, um, Alice, it would be good to discuss what the problems and implications of the current crew crisis situation are. Well, thank you, Kat. Um, who would have thought that 11 months ago we would be sitting here today discussing a global crew crisis that's been ongoing for almost one year? And in many respects, it's actually become worse over recent months and really with no end yet in sight. And just to give an example, a recent example, a few days ago, I was really shocked when a guard was informed of a new claim involving a ship where two of its crew members had been on board for 21 months. And it was not for want of trying by the owners to try to disembark this crew. They tried to repatriate them in numerous ports all around the world, uh, but it has just not been possible. So uh, the grim reality is that despite efforts from ship owners, from international organisations like the ITF, the International Chamber of Ship Owners, the United Nations, to persuade governments around the world to give seafarers key worker status, we continue to see thousands and thousands of crew stranded on board long after their employment contracts have actually come to an end. And of course, the impact on crew who are stranded on board in this way, without doubt, takes a very heavy toll. And people often talk about seafarers and how resilient they are. But of course, their mental and physical well-being is put at risk. And that can lead to illness, exhaustion can set in, and uh, this can lead to mistakes being made and to injuries and, in worst case, um, a casualty involving other people and even uh, the ship. Even if it's possible to make a crew change, the seafarer also has to expect a significant period in quarantine. And that can be both at the disembarkation port as well as when they reach their home country. And that could add on another four weeks of isolation before they actually get home to their families. So who knows what this long-term effect will be on, uh, on crew members. Now, what we see at Guard is that it remains very difficult to get medical treatment to crew. And that can mean that their condition can worsen. And something which might have been a very simple condition to treat turns into something uh, much more serious. We also see that it is extremely difficult to repatriate crew members, sick crew members, let alone healthy ones. Finding flights and travel corridors is really like manoeuvring a labyrinth today. And even when a route is found and arrangements are put in place, The sudden imposition of restrictions in a local port can result in a complete repatriation falling through. And that obviously 
also impacts the crew's condition and results in extreme disappointment. Now, there's been uh, quite a lot of news lately about seafarers who actually don't want to go back to sea after being stranded there uh, for months on end. And what about the impact that the crisis may have on new recruits to the industry? How attractive is a seafaring career going to be in the future? And if you couple that with the fact that many seafarers come from the Philippines and the likelihood of the Filipino seafarers getting a vaccine anytime soon is not very high, the industry might well face a crisis of a shortage of seafarers in the not too distant future. So I think there's still a lot of uncertainty ahead, not only for the seafarers, but also for the industry. And I think this is likely to stretch into 2022, unfortunately. However, the upside of this crisis is that seafarers and their well-being have really become very much in focus. And I hope that this will remain the case even when the pandemic is over. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alice. And Marlene, what are the disputes between owners and charters from this crew crisis situation? Well, thanks for asking that, Kat. I think at Guard, we're in a unique position because we really do see this crisis from every angle, right? So we've got Alice, who's the head of People Claims, and she and her team see it from the seafarer's angle. And then I'm in the charters and traders defense team. So I see a lot of charter party disputes between owners and charters. And a year in, we are still dealing with issues relating uh, to COVID crew change. And in the last seven, eight months or so, we've sort of seen the full spectrum of possible disputes, right? That they can largely be categorized into several broad headings. So the first one I think is issues arising from crew changes that have taken place within the last 14 days before the vessel reaches a discharge port. Because, of course, discharge port states are understandably nervous about crew changes that have taken place very recently, so they will often impose quarantine measures or additional anti-COVID measures on such vessels, and that inevitably leads to delays. And sometimes there might be claims for late delivery or penalties imposed by cargo receivers that that charters will try to pass up the charter party chain. And it can also have sort of unforeseeable effects such as cancelled bunkering arrangements, which will lead to penalties and vessels being redelivered with insufficient quantities of bunkers on board. And there are also claims arising from certain delays that may have been avoided if the vessel hadn't had to quarantine. For example, if you arrive at a discharge port and there was a typhoon 17 days later, and if you hadn't had to quarantine for 14 days, you would have avoided the typhoon altogether. But now you're stuck in the middle of it and you lose three days. The second category of disputes that we often see relate to the crew being on board for too long. And too long can be for example, exceeding the 11-month limit under the Maritime Labor Convention or certain limits that port states might impose of their own volition. And in these situations, vessels can face potential detention by port states or they can face crew claims under the Maritime Labor Convention or crew strikes 
Or there's a case that we've been dealing with recently, which is quite interesting. The crew on board are from Myanmar, and because of the recent coup, it's more or less impossible to repatriate them at this moment. But at the same time, the vessel owners know that if they sail the ship to a particular country, because of that crew who have been on board for a certain amount of time, that port state will detain the vessel. But at the same time, that port state will not let the crew off the vessel. So from the owner's perspective, they can't go to that port state at all. It's inevitable that there will be problems. So the the owners are faced with a situation where they have to knowingly and intentionally breach the charter party and refuse their employment orders to go to that particular port. And of course, that will give rise to all, all sorts of complications as well. Now, the third category of disputes that we can see in charter party situations is even if we have owners and charters who have agreed a charter party that makes provision for the possibility of crew change. So before fixing the vessel, the parties discussed it. The charters are fully aware that uh, a crew change will be necessary at some point. When the vessel actually goes to the port to change the crew, it takes longer than expected, which is also quite, it's quite normal in this day and age because flights are so unpredictable. So a crew change that maybe should have only taken a few hours back in the good old days, it might end up being delayed for five days. And that's the other sort of disputes that we can see. So it's all quite, there are a lot of tensions between owners and charters in these situations. And what we can see is that owners want to be responsible and they want to change their crew. And at the same time, charters have no wish to be obstructive and they want to facilitate these crew changes. But often the charter parties do not sufficiently allocate the risk and time and expense of such crew changes between the parties. And that's when people get into arguments. Thank you, Malene. That's great. Kind of following on from that, Alice, what are the implications of the new strains and mutations of COVID-19? Um, what are the challenges with vaccinations for seafarers? Well, unfortunately, because these new strains and mutations of coronavirus can be more infectious and they can result in more serious illness and deaths, and because of the uncertainty around whether, the, whether they are resistant to um, the current vaccines available, this has uh, led to stricter lockdowns around the globe, as well as additional restrictions on travel. And it has unfortunately limited the movement of seafarers even further. Whilst we saw from the middle of last year towards the end of the year, uh, some movement was indeed possible and crew changes were taking place, the situation now has uh, really been strictly limited and, and almost reverted to how things were almost one year ago. And of course, an added complication is that each country has a different response, different regulations are in force, and these restrictions and regulations can, can change from one day to the next. I think there are a number of challenges relating to the vaccination of seafarers. First and foremost, we mustn't forget that we are in the very early stages of vaccinating the world population. And there are just a, a handful of approved vaccines available. 
there are, of course, you know, limited supplies of these approved vaccines. And at the moment, most of the world's global vaccination programs are run on a national population basis and are run by governments rather than being rolled out on an industry basis or any private vaccination programs. So my guess is that it's going to be a considerable time before we can see seafarers being given priority access to COVID-19 vaccinations. We really applaud all the government lobbying by industry organisations, ship owners and uh, Uh, not least the recent uh, Neptune declaration, to uh, try to ensure that uh, seafarers get priority access to the vaccine, regardless of nationality. However, aside from the challenges already encountered in getting governments around the world to give seafarers key status, and the issues of vaccine availability and distribution that I just mentioned, There's also the logistical challenge of administering a two-dose vaccine to crew members. Now, it's really good news that a one-dose vaccine is in the process of being approved. I know that applications have been made in the US and just a few days ago also uh, in the EU. So that's a, a very good development and a step in the right direction towards it making towards making it a lot easier for seafarers uh, to become vaccinated. I also think it will take some time for the industry to put in place an infrastructure to enable vaccination to, to take place, and that will involve the establishment of protocols. There will need to be a certification system in place, and we will no doubt have to look at things like COVID passports and so on. So I feel that while these challenges are being actively addressed, I think it will be quite some time before we see an industry vaccination programme for seafarers. Thank you. Thank you. And Canal, what are the long term effects of this crisis on seafarers and also on shipping more generally? So, Kat, to answer the question in terms of the long-term impact of this crisis, I think it's very important to understand our actions today as an industry. How, as an industry, we are responding to this crisis will actually dictate the way seafarers and this industry will be looked at in the years to come. And I would say learning from the current crisis and all these cases that Alice has talked about, and in fact, even Baleen mentioned the disputes between charters and owners, I think we have seen a lot of pain points which were accepted as business as usual in the industry. The good thing is that these pain points have come to the surface now. I think the world has taken notice about our industry and what the seafarers are going through, and which is very important transformation. So when we look at the, uh, the hardships that the seafarers are facing today, we also see on the parallel on the side, there's some protocols and procedures being laid out by, let's say, some of these uh, crew change hubs around the world, like Hong Kong and Singapore. Uh, they came up with SG Star Fund in Singapore early on to establish a corridor system to ensure that seafarers from some of the prominent countries, seafaring nations, are able to travel with controlled measures and, and join and disembark from vessels. Those protocols are being uh, accepted in the Neptune Declaration, 
And it is likely that the same procedures and protocols will be implemented in other ports around the world. And I think that gives us an indication of what the future could look like for the seafarers. I think it will be too optimistic uh, to expect that it will become, or rather crew change will become business as usual in the near future. I think a lot of the changes that we are seeing now will remain for years, if not decades. And the good thing is that at least we will have more clarity in terms of how these seafarers will move from the country of origin to the place where they need to join the vessel. The second important thing, I think, which Alice also mentioned, is that the focus has come on the seafarers now. I think that is long overdue. Being an ex-seafarer myself, I know this is, um, you can call it a community, the seafaring community, is has been largely sidelined because that was the nature of the trade. And in the last few years, we have seen that the attention has been on their well-being. The industry was coming together and this COVID-19 crisis has only accelerated the whole process. So we see now some of our ship managers, they are paying a lot more attention of the well-being of the seafarers on board because they know that they may be required to serve an extended time on board the vessel. Simple things like internet, which used to be a luxury back then, has almost become a necessity and almost become a priority for some of the ship managers, which I think is an important first step. And they're also focusing on their, their families back home. You talked about what, you know, are the seafarers going to be looking at um, this as a viable profession going forward? One of the biggest concerns for some of the senior seafarers, uh, those who are in the ranks of captain, the chief finish, was that if they leave home, who's going to look after their families back home once they're away? Because some of them come from areas which were severely affected or infected by COVID-19. So they were worried about their families back home. And some of the managers actually made procedures to ensure that the families are well looked after while the seafarers are in the, on their tour of duty. So overall, I'm, I'm also, I mean, yes, I do acknowledge the short-term negative impact of this crisis on seafarers. But at the same time, I feel that the way the industry is coming together, with the way all the players are coming together to issue this, to address this crisis, I think it is also showing a very optimistic view of what this industry can achieve in the years to come. Thank you. Thank you. And I mean, you, you, you kind of already touched on it. And I know Alice mentioned it as well about if this is going to put people off serving at sea. And, you know, as shipping already has a seafarer shortage, does this make things worse? Absolutely. Yes, uh, Kat. I think it does make situation worse temporarily. So now when, you talk, when we talk to our members, a lot of them are struggling to get some of the senior masters back at sea. And these masters, uh, they have been at, uh, with the company for decades. You know, they're a very important asset for the company. And now they're showing reluctance to get back on board the vessel. So, yes, I think there is, a, there is that uh, issue of you know, seafarers, seafarers actually contemplating whether this is a viable profession for them or not. I've also spoken to some of the young seafarers, um, you know, who have you know, been at sea for about four or five years. For them, it is, they see this as temporary. They don't see a long-term impact, or they don't see a long-term impact of um, you know the, these restrictions in the, in the shipping company, in the shipping industry. But having said that, I think most seafarers have contemplated a change in career and looked elsewhere, you know, somewhere which is more stable, which is more reliable, where they actually get their basic human dignity. And at the same time, I think 
there are others who feel that if they are able to somehow pull through this crisis, they will be in a better position in terms of their career at sea. So it's, it's uh, I think, soon too soon to say whether it will have an impact on shortage of sea, the seafarers community as such. Only time will tell. Thank you. And Marlene, do you find um, the industry responding to the crisis and how could it do it better? Is there anything specific that IUMI and IUMI members could do? And from your side, obviously, as guard, um, what is PNI doing to assist and alleviate the situation? Well, thanks, Kat. That's a really good question. So I think Alice and Kunal have done an excellent job of highlighting why this crisis matters. So I'm not going to preach to the choir about why we should care and why we should try to resolve this situation or the impact that it has on global trade or commercial supply chains. To me, the question is, what can we actually do about it? So what are the concrete actions that we can take? Now, this is a global problem and it needs a global solution. And when I say global, I don't mean just you know, within different countries, I also mean it needs to be, uh, there needs to be commitment and involvement from all stakeholders. That includes international organizations, governments, industry associations, labor unions, NGOs, and last but not least, individual companies. So I think those of us in maritime shipping are quite used to cross-border problems that arise when we're dealing with so many different jurisdictions and port state authorities. And these are daily occurrences. We don't think twice about them. It happens every day. But I think one of the fundamental issues at the root of the seafarer humanitarian crisis is that governments and port state authorities don't act consistently with one another. And they also tend to react in ways that will protect their national interests above all else. Now, within each country, you'll have tensions between the ministries of health, security, immigration, and transport, right? Everyone has different priorities, and that could lead to very different policies or regulations from country to country. And this isn't surprising, and we can't fault governments for prioritizing the health and well-being of their citizens. But this sort of inconsistency and fragmentation, unfortunately, does exacerbate the crisis. So I think that those of us within the industry are, you know, comparatively the subject matter experts. So it really is up to us to spread the word and educate our governments and lobby insistently for measures recommended by industry bodies, such as the IMO, ICS, ITF, ILO, UN. You know, that's, I know that's a lot of acronyms, but <laughs> they are all involved in initiatives to resolve this crew crisis. Now, something that we probably have seen a lot in the press recently is the so-called Neptune Declaration. So this is quite interesting. It's basically a group of, I think, at this point, over 600 companies, organizations, and trade associations by now who have signed up to a pledge, which recognizes that we all have a shared responsibility to ensure that the crew change crisis is resolved as soon as possible and to use the learnings from the crisis as an opportunity to build a more resilient maritime supply chain. So what I find really interesting about this pledge is that it's very good at summarizing the problems that have led to the current crisis. And it also sort of neatly sets out a few action points that people can try to 
achieve in order to resolve the crew crisis. So the problems uh, summarized by the Neptune Declaration include the fact that health protocols have not been consistently implemented in practice. So authorities often perceive seafarers as a COVID-19 risk, which limits the possibilities of crew changes. Another difficulty is that the current restrictions and logistical difficulties in changing crew are leading to increased short-term costs, which imposes quite a significant burden on ship owners. And lastly, the disruption of international air travel has reduced the number of flights. And as Alice mentioned earlier, trying to find a route for seafarers to go home is like navigating a labyrinth. So the Neptune Declaration very succinctly and neatly sets out the problems and the action points that can be undertaken by various stakeholders. Now, I bring this up not because I'm advocating that everybody should immediately go out and sign the Neptune Declaration. So if you read through the full thing, you can see that it does set out some measures that might be beyond the ambit of certain companies, or the measures might be at variance with the interests of a company's clients. So it's possible that a marine insurer might not be in a position to support measures which try to dictate their clients' contractual relationships or how they operate their vessels. But having said that, there are certainly many other ways for IUMI members and PNI clubs and other stakeholders to do their bit. So the first and foremost would be to lend their support to recommendations and protocols made by industry bodies, like all the acronyms I mentioned before, IMO, ICS, ITF, ILL, UN, all of those, and to lobby the appropriate authorities at home for adopting the recommendations and protocols. So the international group of PNI clubs, for example, has lent its support to the IMO and ICS in their initiatives to resolve the crew crisis. And... Also, since early 2020, GARD has been active in the United Nations COVID-19 Task Force, which includes, it, which includes about 40 organizations such as the WHO, IMO, and ICS. And uh, as a result of the efforts of GARD, ICS, and other members of the task force, the UN General Assembly has made a resolution on, the, I think, the 1st of December 2020, to designate seafarers as key workers. Now, the reason key worker status matters is that it is essential to exempt seafarers from specific COVID-related travel restrictions, and that will allow them to travel between their country of residence and ships and to be repatriated at the end of their contracts. Now, as of mid-December 2020, I understand I think 45 countries have designated seafarers as key workers, which is a massive improvement compared to this time last year. But there is still more work that needs to be done. There are more countries that haven't yet made this designation. And we encourage everybody to lobby the relevant authorities to give this designation to seafarers. Another reason why it is important to designate seafarers as key workers is that hopefully that will also give them priority access to vaccinations regardless of their nationalities. Now, in addition to the efforts to try and promote seafarers as key workers and to be granted priority access to vaccines, GARD has also been involved in a UN Global Compact initiative to produce a maritime human rights due diligence checklist. I know that's quite a mouthful, 
Um, but essentially, the idea is that all the actors in a supply chain have a role to play in avoiding complicity with practices which fall short of human rights standards. So this due diligence checklist, which is still a work in progress, asks the business community and other stakeholders to look beyond just vessel owners and charters and also conduct due diligence investigations into other actors within the supply chain, that is, actors beneath the charter level. And finally, something that we at Guard have been trying to do is educate and encourage our members to engage in transparent and open dialogue before fixing vessels. So charters, I think, have been unfortunately rather maligned by the industry press. And there is a lot of criticism on them for refusing to fix ships that require crew change. I think it's worth pointing out that charters tend to be a bit wary about fixing vessels in situations where it's, you know, the, it, it's a spot charter for just a single voyage from and to certain named ports. And because these voyages tend to be relatively short, a 14-day quarantine in the middle of the charter period represents a significant delay in comparison to the overall voyage duration. And there has been a lot of criticism on charters for this sort of behavior. But at the same time, I think everybody recognizes that uh, freedom to contract is important. It, it is the it underpins the contractual relationships between owners and charters. And what we would encourage is for owners and charters to be very frank and honest about the need for crew change before fixing vessels. This is one of those situations where prevention is better than a cure. And if these pre-fixture discussions reveal that a vessel requires crew change imminently and a charter decides not to fix the vessel or they try to negotiate for a lower freight rate or a higher rate, then so be it because it is better to know these things upfront than having to deal with very complex dispute down the line. I think this um, brings us to the end of our podcast. I would like to thank again, Alice, Malene and Canal for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been informative and very interesting. So thank you. Thank you, Kat. Thank you. It's yes. been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Kat. It's been great. <laughs> thank you. And um, goodbye from us. <laughs>